These price rises were not brought about by the actions of Australian households or Australian industry. They were brought about by Vladimir Putin and they were brought about by Australia being ill-prepared for such a crisis because of 10 years of policy dysfunction. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Baseload podcast for 2023. The opening clip was Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen back in December 2022 claiming victory over common sense as he explained that price caps for coal and gas were being implemented with the assistance of state, governments and the federal crossbench. The national electricity market and Australian energy policies look very different at the start of 2023 compared to the start of 2022. State and federal renewable energy targets have ramped up with the 82% federal target superimposed on top of state target increases in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. This episode, I want to try and look ahead at some of the biggest challenges for consumers as a result of these policies. First though, for new listeners, a quick recap on my thoughts on how gas, coal and electricity policy should be managed in Australia. Number one, what is the point of a federal energy minister? The supply of electricity and the development of resources, including coal and gas, are state responsibilities. A federal role should only be a coordinator a role that helps to iron out disagreements between states or maybe get involved when a project crosses state lines, for example, gas pipelines or electricity interconnectors. It's a sidebar at best. Federal energy ministers have unerringly failed to improve anything for Australian consumers since the national electricity market as we now know it was bureaucracied into existence. Get rid of them, delete the portfolio. If anybody thinks I'm wrong and that some long-term consumer benefit has resulted as As a result of federal energy policy, by all means, let me know. Number two, no Australian policy can change global emissions. Even if we turned off all the power points and sat still until we died, global emission increases would replace ours, our 1%, in weeks. Therefore, Australia should have no emissions reduction targets. Our emissions policy, at the very most, should only be a commitment to not increase emissions beyond our 2007 peak. Even if our emissions remain at the rate they were in 2007, our contribution to the total would be reducing. If emissions reduction is a high priority for you, and if context like that grates on your soul, or whatever, you know, perhaps take a break from facts for a while. Number three, rooftop solar subsidies. Arbitrary technology targets in the electricity sector and the raft of subsidies and incentives available to renewables need to be phased out as fast as possible. There aren't many sadder sights than a wealthy 50-year-old boasting about his 15 kilowatts of subsidised rooftop solar and not paying any electricity bills, while the neighbour down the street is a 90-year-old single pensioner who pays $350 a quarter for electricity. Take, for example, the 15 kilowatts of rooftop solar, which without subsidies would cost around $20,000, which is close to 10 years of electricity bills. Squeeze that down to $15,000 or less, and suddenly that wealthy individual, you know, because who else would pay years of electricity consumption up front, that wealthy individual is closing in on a five-year payback. In the meantime, that money, would normally, normally collected from bills, would flow through the system, contributing to distribution networks, transmission networks, and generators. Well, that money's gone from the system. It's no mistake that Productivity Commission reports and ACCC reports have for years recommended the elimination of rooftop solar subsidies. It's an inequitable wealth transfer advantaging the wealthy, and everybody knows it. Rooftop solar subsidies are not good government. Number four, energy scarcity is not good government. I had a discussion with a work colleague just this week, and he actually said to me that electricity should cost more so that we'd use less energy per capita, and as a result, we'd help the climate. This is a bad argument. I replied that if per capita energy consumption was the measure, 
then countries like Africa and Pakistan would be at the top of the list. He then said that energy efficiency should be the goal. I said, sure, there's some merit in efficiency, some value. An obvious example is fuel consumption in vehicles. As technology improves, efficiency increases. But if I took the $30,000 I spent on a 2021 Hyundai Tucson and instead kept my 2008 Toyota RAV4, I couldn't because it was written off. That's a different story. Anyway, if I'd kept that $30,000 at 10 litres per 100 kilometres and say $2 per litre, that $30,000 spent on a new car would have purchased 15,000 litres of fuel and gotten me around about 150,000 kilometres. And that's another 10 years of fuel for me. What I'm trying to make obvious is that efficiency improvements require spending money, money that the non-wealthy, those who can't afford the subsidised rooftop solar, or may not even have their own roof to put it on, cannot afford. If you can't afford to access the efficiency savings, your only cost-saving option is to consume less. And that's what we see. What does help people, the most amount of people in businesses and industries, is lowering the cost for everybody. Number five. I mentioned subsidies for rooftop solar, but I need to cover the large-scale stuff too. There is a place for subsidies, and that is to reduce financial risk for a new technology or startup. That is good government. Help entrepreneurs invest in people and ideas. But two decades of subsidies and incentives for large-scale wind and solar, and now batteries and electric vehicles and hydrogen, this is bad government. These subsidies are not de-risking startups or new technology. This is completely eliminating risk for big corporations. A good example is a wind farm like Mount Emerald outside Mariba in North Queensland. A 12-year offtake by state government corporation Ergon completely insulates the operator from market variability. They don't care about the market price at all. But why does it matter? Surely, uh, surely it'll all work out in the end, right? Chris Bowen, as the, remember, he's the federal energy minister, is telling everybody that wind and solar will lower their electricity bills. Well, when you listen to his clips, he doesn't actually say that. He just says they're cheaper. It's the cheapest new energy. We are totally committed to getting more renewable energy into the system to reduce power prices because unlike the Liberal Party which thinks nuclear is the answer, that's the most expensive form of energy, we know, the science tells us, renewable energy is the answer. It is the cheapest form of energy. That was Chris Bowen on Sky News in September last year. Notice he says reducing power prices. He doesn't say reducing the cost to consumers. Maybe he thinks it's the same thing. I don't know. He also said the, the science tells us, uh, and of course, politicians have been using the phrase the science to shut people up for a couple of years now. I honestly don't think Chris Bowen knows what he's talking about. Can large-scale wind and solar reduce an electricity bill? Well, let's dig into the details a little further than Chris Bowen does. Nobody has a cable strung directly into a wind or solar farm. There is other infrastructure in between, substations, transmission lines, more substations, distribution networks, pad mount transformers... Underground cables, overhead cables, pillars, trenches, poles, pits, meters, meter readers, retailers. These all cost money that you, as a consumer, pays for out of your electricity bill. The wholesale price represents the generators, and that wholesale price represents around 30% of the value of an electricity bill. So I would ask Chris Bowen, which of these components, apart from wholesale price, is made cheaper by building wind and solar? The answer is, of course, none of them. And several of these components are made more expensive. Consider the tens of billions currently being spent on transmission lines. That part of the bill goes up. Rooftop solar increases the costs of operating and maintaining the distribution networks. Many more market participants adds overheads to the system and they all want a profit. Many more businesses making profit from the system means that in total it must get more expensive. Now, let's consider the sacred cow of wholesale prices. 
Do wind and solar lower wholesale prices? Well, in current practice, you would have to say no. But why not? Intuitively, it makes sense that a cheaper source of supply should result in a cheaper product. Well, the answer to that is that the grid-scale generators do not sell their products separately. They tender into a combined market that results in a clearing price. The most expensive generator sets the price. Wind and solar are very rarely the most expensive generators. But the argument goes that wind and solar displace more expensive generators. Sure, okay. But what happens is that a power station like a Raring, with four separate 660 megawatt units, just turns one off to avoid all their units running at minimum output, and they turn them off for weeks at a time. During these weeks, if the demand goes up or the weather is not favourable for wind and solar, there is no displacing more expensive generators because the expensive gas and hydro are required to jump in and fill the gaps. And every time that happens, they set the price. And gas and hydro set the price many more times in a day than wind and solar can ever do. Therefore, wind and solar cannot even lower the wholesale price except under very specific conditions. And that's where the weather is perfect, demand is low, and there are enough low-cost coal units online to avoid gas and hydro. And as you can see in you can see this in the market where the wholesale price has averaged over $100 a megawatt hour uh, in some states all through 2017, 2018, 2019. Came down in 2020 because of international commodity prices dropped because of government decisions to lock people down. And then in 2021 and 2022, we can see the big price spikes. So wind and solar lowering the electricity bills? Don't think so. The modelling that we've heard of so far suggests that prices will go up. They won't go up as much as previously thought. So in terms of taking the sting out of the tail, there's still a sting. Uh, the price of electricity will go up for households 20% in year one, 23% in year two. So that's still a significant increase. What's your message to Australians who might be watching this or may be seeing the news tonight and might think, well, hang on, we, as you say, it's Australian gas and Australian soil. You've taken this unprecedented action, hugely contentious, and you're still getting a 20% increase in electricity, then a 23% increase in electricity. Can you not do more? Are all those costs so built into the system now that you can't do better than that? So, David, I mean, obviously, uh, we were on the latest figures uh, expecting a 36% increase next year. The coal and gas cap um, reduces that very substantially, uh, down to 23, and then you add the rebates uh, and you get down uh, again. Right. We have never claimed, not once have we claimed that this is a magic bullet or we'll see prices go down next year. And I challenge you, I know you're not asserting that, but for the sake of the argument... I'm not I no, I understand. Why, why uh, no, I respect, no, no, just, just, I understand the question, I'm answering. Nobody could point to anywhere where the Prime Minister, the Treasurer or I have said, hey, we're, we're reducing energy prices magically in the next six months. Minister Bowen there taking questions uh, about his a gas price cap and the effects. He did challenge people to find when his government had said the prices would come down. Uh, here's some election promise revision. Labor's plan to create jobs, cut power bills, boost renewables and reduce emissions. Intent on not repeating the mistakes of the last election campaign, this one full of detail. Labor's powering Australia plan is fully costed. And targeted at the hip pocket, promising to cut electricity bills by $275 a year by 2025 and 378 by 2030 and create 600,000 jobs, 500,000 in the regions. The world's climate emergency is Australia's jobs opportunity. We all remember those election promises. 
reducing prices, creating jobs, lowering emissions, etc., etc. But the gas price cap, who does it affect and is it helping anybody? There is some correlation between the announcement of the gas price cap and lower domestic gas prices. However, that can be better explained by looking to Europe. Remember, European countries like Germany's pursuit of international gas pushed international gas prices to new records. But Europe had a mild start to winter with fuller than usual gas storages. And as a result, the global gas price has dropped back to usual levels. This is also reflected in Australia with gas prices now down to the $11 range. And electricity futures also coming down. For parallels, look to the US where gas futures are down around $3 US or $5 Australian. So how have local consumers navigated this period? Here's Nick Tandy, General Manager of Polyfoam Australia, who was interviewed on ABC Radio early in January. So walk us through your year in energy prices and how the price spikes and the volatility has affected you this year. Uh, pretty dramatically. Uh, we, we had a contract with Western Energy a couple of years ago and the government pulled out their right to operate. So we went from $7 a gigajoule to $40 a gigajoule in a three-month span. And for us, that means about $240,000 a month additional gas costs. I'll pause it there to do a couple of quick sums. If you take the $40 a gigajoule and subtract the original seven, they're paying an additional $33 a gigajoule. So that extra $240,000 a month over 33 puts them at around about 7,200 gigajoules per month. Whereas previously they would have been paying that 50,000 a month, almost five times. The other piece of information mentioned by Nick Tandy there was Western the W-E-S-T-O-N is the name of the company. In an AFR report, uh, it says AGL had to take on 1,300 Western customers as a retailer of last resort after the Australian energy regulator suspended Western's license in May 2022, making the company one of the first casualties of Australia's energy crisis. Western had been unable to cover the cash flow requirements of its trading portfolio. AGL, as the retailer of last resort, inherited the customers and placed a lot of those customers onto default market offer plans much at a much higher rate than their uh, long-term contracts. And obviously that's been expressed there by Nick Tandy and his uh, $40. And in the AFR article, the tier one retailer said it needed to do this to cover the cost of buying supplies on the spot market. So you can see there that that additional uh, demand if AGL didn't have existing contracts to cover that much demand, they need to go and source that from the spot market. Nick Tandy continues the interview. We were immediately transferred to what they called the retailer of last resort, which was basically whoever that had been designated the supplier of gas to the area, and I think that was AGL at the time, and uh, instantly reverted to $40 a gigajoule. Uh, and, t- and we had to then renegotiate contracts with somebody, which we ended up getting put in place for about $30 a gigajoule. But from 7 to 30 was pretty painful. What is the term of the contract that you renegotiated, this $30 a gigajoule contract? Initially, it was for 12 months to give us time to find, uh, hopefully, a better contract. Uh, and in in the last 12 months, we've been able to negotiate a slightly reducing rate. So it's around $29 going down to $20 over the next three years. So we're pretty well tied up in a contract for uh, another three years at 29, reducing to 20. But how's that going to be affected by the government's decision? We're totally unsure. We've got no information whatsoever how that's going to affect us. So let's step through this for a second. We have a gas retailer with customers on contract for $7 a gigajoule. 
Presumably, these gas retailers are not insolvent at $7 a gigajoule, meaning they are making a profit purchasing gas from the market at less than $7. Also, presumably, the gas retailer is ducking and weaving through the ups and downs of the spot market, looking to increase their margins by sourcing lower-cost gas wherever they can. So, of course, that lower-cost gas existed. Then suddenly, global gas scarcity hits because Russian gas is boycotted in response to the Ukraine invasion. European countries and others desperately looking for gas to keep their economies running and stop their citizens from freezing in cold northern hemisphere winters offer more for spot cargoes, pushing spot market gas to record highs. Gas retailers in Australia, previously able to make a profit selling $7 gas, now find themselves unable to afford to buy gas on the spot market, therefore cannot remain solvent. Chaos ensues. This is a million dollars a year impact across a polyfoam group. Additional million dollars. Well, what do you do with that additional million dollars in costs every year? Do you absorb it? Do you pass it on? What do you do? <laughs> we don't make that and sufficient profit to absorb a million dollars. So sadly, our customers have to pay it. It goes under the price of the goods, which, by the way, means in public. So we can see inflation and increased costs unfolding in real time. The question from the ABC interviewer, I'd expect nothing less from them that uh, private companies, can they just absorb these costs? Well, that's, that's pretty ridiculous. There was one reasonable question asked of Nick Tandy, and that is, can they look for other sources of energy apart from gas? Basically, we use gas to run a steam boiler to make steam, which is how the plastics fuse together. And there, we, we've explored electricity. We've explored a number of options as to how we can make the amount of steam we need. And solar, electric, electrical, every other option at this stage is three to four times more expensive than gas, even at the exorbitant $40 a gigajoule uh, electricity still doesn't compete. This is the government of Australia acting in the national interest working as a good government does. I mean, renewables are the cheapest form of energy. Uh, Everybody, every expert acknowledges that. One of the biggest impacts on electricity consumers this year will be the closure of Liddell Power Station on 28th of April, just weeks after the New South Wales state election scheduled for 25th of March 2023. I'm recording this in the last week of January 2023, and summer has arrived, with most of the week reaching over 30 degree days. Most would agree this is typical summer weather for Australia, hot and humid. The New South Wales electricity grid sees peak solar output around 2pm, while coal output ramps up from a minimum at midday, peaks at 4pm and bottoms out around 3am. This last week, the New South Wales coal-fired power stations have been ramping up to meet the summer evening demand, with some stations seeing over 90% output in the peak periods. Since early January, Liddell has lifted its output to almost 1,000 megawatts. It just makes that capacity available to AMO and offers that capacity at very low prices, about minus $965 a megawatt hour, to ensure dispatch. And that's the way Liddell has been operated for a couple of years now. On Friday the 27th of January 2023, New South Wales coal power output reached a peak of 7,429 megawatts, from a total capacity of about 9,000 megawatts. Remembering, Liddell has one unit offline since April 2022 and the remaining three have been derated from 500 megawatts to around 320 megawatts. So we do the calcs, and we get 7429 divided by 9000 equals 0.82. That's all five New South Wales coal-fired power stations, including Liddell, at 82% capacity. Now let's remove Liddell's 1,000 megawatts from the total. That means 7429 megawatts must be delivered from 8,000 megawatts of capacity. And that means that after 28th of April... 
for New South Wales to meet demand on a hot day, the remaining four New South Wales coal-fired power stations must operate at... 7429 divided by 8,000 equals 92.8% capacity. Now, this is crude, and there are other factors like how much wind is blowing, how much is being imported from Victoria, Queensland, and South Australia, you know, sometime in the future via Energy Connect. But the obvious trend is not electricity surplus, is it? And I'm sorry, but having electricity surplus at 3 a.m. or 12 p.m. doesn't count. The phrase meeting demand does not implicitly include when the weather is favourable. But that's where we're going. Note that I didn't say other factors like wind and solar, because the peak period for dispatchable generators is when solar has gone to bed. So, to replace coal, you need to address the peaks, in this case, 7,429 megawatts. And batteries won't do it. Let's take the period where coal ramped up from minimum overnight load on Friday 27th of January through the afternoon and evening peak and returned to the overnight base load of 5,000 megawatts. The total output for New South Wales coal in that 14 and a half hour period was 90 gigawatt hours. Now we remove the 5,000 megawatt baseload and focus in on just the increased output over the 5,000 megawatts during that period. We do that by multiplying 5,000 megawatts by 14.5 hours. And we get 72.5 gigawatt hours. That leaves 17.5 gigawatt hours. So if we take 90 minus 72.5, and I get 17.5. So that 17.5 gigawatt hours is the electricity output during the peak period by New South Wales coal plants over and above the overnight base load of 5,000 megawatts. We also have the difference in the instantaneous power, which is 7,429 minus 5,000 is 2,429 megawatts. The biggest battery in Australia is the Victorian Big Battery, officially opened in December 2021. This is rated at 300 megawatts and 450 megawatt hours. So let's deal with the instantaneous output first, the megawatts. If I take the, the gap, 2429, and I divide it by 300 capacity, I get 8.1. So let's be generous and round down to 8. So we need 8 of these biggest batteries in Australia to cover the instantaneous gap in megawatts. Let's now look at the megawatt hours, the area under the curve, or the output over time. The assumption here is these batteries are fully charged going into the 14 and a half hour period. So we have eight of them, we times them by their capacity of 450 megawatt hours, and you get 3,600 megawatt hours, which is 3.6 gigawatt hours. Now, recall the actual electricity required over and above the baseload is 17.5 gigawatt hours. We have just established that eight of the largest batteries in the country would fill about 20% of the overnight gap. That is, where did I get that from? Okay, 17.5 divided by 3.6 is 4.8, so about one-fifth. And then after that overnight gap, they need to be fully charged before the next peak period starts. So again, crude examples, and I've left out expensive gas and hydro, but it does serve to make the magnitude of the problem somewhat clearer. My question about Liddell is not around will power prices go up, that's clear, and was mentioned in the April 2020 report of the Liddell Task Force, where it flagged the risks of closing Liddell without suitable replacement. My question around Liddell surrounds, will somebody blink first? With the election coming up, you have the likely next 
Premier of New South Wales is Labor. And they will have the perfect opportunity to say the Libs stuffed it up. We need to keep Liddell open, or at least some of it. Uh, and if the Libs, by some miracle, get back in, then they have the opportunity of blaming the, the federal Labor government that Snowy 2 is not ready and Interconnect is not ready. And so they can blame that. I find it quite remarkable we're sitting here in Australia and contemplating a, a federal government in cahoots with the states, apparently trying to set prices all over the economy. I mean, this is literally what, uh, what communist states do. They set prices uh, and think that's better than the market. It always ends in, in tears, as we've seen all around the world. If only other countries had tried this before and we could see what happened. Well, we just have to travel to South America or the former Soviet Union to see how terrible these ideas uh, can be. Senator Matt Canavan interviewed on Sky News there, unloading on his thoughts about price caps and government interference in so-called competitive markets. Another industry veteran, Ian McFarlane, CEO of the Queensland Resources Council, interviewed recently on the ABC. This government and governments in Australia are prepared to interfere in a market which is supposed to be a commercial market, which operates in a commercial way and is, is based on the risk and reward system that we all know so well. So if you look at the impact of this, you've seen it in, in, in the various companies' statements, be they Australian-based companies like Sandos or be they international companies like Shell or Chevron, be they companies like Woodside, which again is an Australian company. The shock to the investment system and the uncertainty about what return you'll get for the risk you take, and remember these projects cost billions and billions and billions of dollars. But isn't and there are plenty of alternatives around the world. McFarlane's last point is critical. There are, of course, other places for these resource companies to get the, the product that's in demand. Take coal, for example. Uh, Australia exports 20% of the world's coal. Indonesia, 43%. Russia, 17%. South Africa, 6%. And Colombia, 5%. These are figures from Resources and Energy Quarterly. If we want to talk about gas... Well, ahead of Australia, you've got Russia, United States, Qatar and Norway all export more gas than Australia. Coming in close behind Australia is Canada and further down Algeria, Nigeria and Indonesia. So gas exists all over the place and it won't be too long before these companies say, well, it's a bit easier doing business there and a bit cheaper and potentially a bit safer politically. And then they'll go. Well, if we could turn just briefly to coal, which will be a matter for the states. The vast majority of coal used to generate electricity in New South Wales and all the coal used to generate power in uh, Queensland is already contracted below the proposed cap of $125 a tonne. How likely is it that prices might rise above that cap and trigger some compensation claims? Well, in Queensland, they're, they're mine mouth um, power stations. That is, they're right on the mine in, in the vast majority of cases, with one or two exceptions and will continue to operate well under the cap. So the cap will have no purpose and no effect other than, as I say again, a signal to the international market that we have a government who is prepared to intervene in the normal commercial arrangements of the energy system in Eastern Australia. Now, it might be very popular in the short term, but in five years' time, when, when gas and coal isn't being produced because investors aren't there to continue with the production of coal, there is only one consequence, and that is power prices will go up and there'll be blackouts. Stephen Wilson was interviewed recently on Channel 7 Sunrise show about 
price caps and the gas market? Uh, you know, I said years ago, 2016, I asked, are we sleepwalking back to central planning? And I was talking about electricity, but uh, what we've just seen with gas is uh, it's very heavy-handed uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's trashing the legacy of uh, the Hawke-Keating reforms uh, that you might remember from back in the 1990s. So when you say it, it might make the situation worse, Professor, that's really alarming to a lot of the families across Australia who are really just reading the headline of a $230 saving. How do you mean it will make things worse? Well, we, we might see rationing. Uh, when you start capping and controlling prices, there is a risk of rationing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the risk is that this will ripple into the power sector. I think there's all kinds of risks in front of us. It, it's certainly not a magic solution. When you say rationing, you mean it, it won't be there when we need it? Well, there's, yeah, there's not enough to go around. Um, that's what happens. What happens when in any market when you start controlling prices uh, like this. So the especially, gas... In, sorry, Professor, please continue. Yeah. No, I mean, especially, uh, especially when you're doing it in a, in a rushed and ad hoc way like this. This is the government of Australia acting in the national interest, working as a good government does. The great realignment in politics, what is it in a nutshell? In a nutshell, it is the movement of formerly left-wing, often union-enrolled, working-class voters towards the right, and the simultaneous movement of educated, often upper-income voters formerly aligned with the right towards the left. It's happening virtually everywhere in varying degrees, and it's been accelerating in recent years. Henry Olson is an American political analyst interviewed here by Nick Cater on his podcast in January 2023. Olson's take as an outsider looking in at the Australian political system is illuminating. And he phrases quite well some of the things that I believe apply specifically to the energy debate. How can you adjust your party in such a way that it appeals to both constituencies? You can't, not in the fullest sense. The Liberal Party is going to have to choose. And my argument is that every conservative centre-right party that has been faced with this before, and there are parties that have been faced with this before, when they choose to try and focus on winning back their old upscale adherents, they're unsuccessful. And the reason they're unsuccessful is they can't go far enough to the center on the politically salient issues that are driving those upscale voters away and keep their party unified. So then, to keep, because the core of every center-right party are people who are economically liberal to moderate and culturally conservative to moderate. The more you make it a party that embraces globalism, the knowledge economy, innovation, and cultural liberalism, the more you both split your leadership from its own base and drive away the potential working-class voters you get, while still not being strong enough on those issues to attract 100% of the people who you lost to begin with. This is the crisis of Malcolm Turnbull in the 2016 election, and the Liberal Party saw it couldn't go in that direction, but it has still not solved that question. And the Conservative or the right wing or whatever you want to call them, these parties won't solve that question by leaning in to the green left teal model, which as we've discussed in this episode, cannot lower energy costs regardless of how bastardized energy markets end up. What we are seeing is political meddling in critical systems by amateurs with no idea what they're doing, purely to appease a section of voters. Olsen continues. 
If neither party adapts to this to create a new majority, what you will see is more of that one-third, 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 and then the labor labor will necessarily have to govern in coalition with Greens or with Teals, but that will create their own splits. It's harder because for the liberals to win in that situation because unlike you said one third, one third, one third, but in a sense, what it is is one third, one third, one sixth, one sixth. That teals and parties of the left are about half of that non-major party vote, and parties of the right, but they're concentrated in one party, the Greens. Whereas the parties on the right that are protest parties are splits that they can't win seats in the House. In the Senate, you can create those coalitions, but you can't create it in the House. So as long as that pertains, that movement will slightly benefit labor in the short term. But then you'll have the question, if labor wins 70 seats and the Greens have six or seven, you know, keep the four they have and pick up a couple more from in in inner urban areas, probably from labor, what's the price of that coalition? It drives them to the left economically and it drives them to the left socially. That creates a pressure for the next election. So what can Peter Dutton, the leader of the opposition, and I guess the uh, the figurehead for the conservative side of politics at the moment, what can he offer to voters like myself who think it's all it's all a big pile of shit at the moment, to be honest? So in the energy market, and that's what we're talking about, energy systems, electricity, coal, gas. What, what options are available? Well, the, the big obvious one is to bring nuclear into the fold, make, get rid of the bans on nuclear. That's, that seems pretty obvious, uh, even more obvious when you realise that the, the Greens and the Teals and the Labor Party absolutely despise it, most of them. Uh, so that's good reason to bring it in in, in the first instance. <laughs> uh, Another one is that we need to phase out these subsidies, uh, especially specifically to rooftop solar. I firmly believe if we had our time again, we would either outlaw rooftop solar in the suburbs and the cities, or we would say that there's no feed-in tariffs and you can't export. I think, uh, and there's a few good reasons for that. One of them is why have all this network infrastructure if everyone's going to be using it, you know, overnight and that's about it and a bit during peaks. To pay for this stuff, it needs to be utilised as, as much as possible and rooftop solar being small, distributed, inefficient, uh, intermittent certainly lowers the utilisation of all these networks. Uh, it's, uh, it's very disappointing. So yes, get rid of rooftop subsidies. Uh, like I mentioned at the start of this episode, the federal energy minister, what's the point of you? Go away uh, from all sides of politics. Uh, and then we need to deal with the the large-scale wind and solar. Now, I don't think that's going to be as easy. You can't just flip a switch or or pass a law which says no more of that because there's contracts signed. So this is this is something we're going to be living with for a generation, 20 or 30 years, while we wait for these things to fade out. I think in the meantime, we've got to get on and build a couple of new dispatchable power stations that will operate at low capacity factors in the first half or a third to a half of their lives. Then as the wind and solar farms turn off uh, in the next 20 or so years, then the utilization and capacity factor of these new power stations will increase. I think that's 
the model that should be adopted. A side that continues to be intransigent will eventually drive the middle to the other side if the other side is open to forming a majority and is not equally And I think what he said there in our energy systems is where we're going. The more and more people can see the reality that the subsidies and the targets don't make any sense. Imagine, imagine setting an 82% renewable energy target for the east coast of Australia uh, to, in 2022 to reach that by 2030. Um, you've got to turn off all the coal-fired power stations and rely on gas and hydro. It uh, it makes no no actual sense. This is this is ideology, uh, and it's not sustainable to use a favourite word of theirs. But it's going to be difficult. I mean, we've just got to. It seems like we almost have to wait until it's only the real extreme activists are the ones making noise about this. Elson had something to say about that too. Go into a climate activist meeting and say, well, you know, we actually need we actually need to go slow to bring the people along with you, and you will hear ten years to save the planet. They won't accept what the middle will give them. The same in the United States is often true on questions of racial tensions. It's no, actually we need to say that whites have inherent supremacy because of our history and that they continue to suppress minorities. This doesn't even appeal to large numbers of minorities who don't see themselves suppressed. But the woke activists won't hear of it. And that makes the left's position extremely difficult. Well, Henry, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult on our side of things too, because it's very disheartening presenting people with facts and they, uh, they blindly ignore it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.